Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. So our guest today is Robert Smigelski, CISSP, MSCE, Manager, Product Cybersecurity at B. Brown Medical. Robert is an engineering manager over the product security lifecycle of B. Brown Medical Devices, in charge of ensuring the security of all aspects of smart programmable medical devices and medical device network communication. Robert is an integral participant and contributor to numerous policy, security design, and security standards bodies, enabling the cyber position of customers, sales, and marketing professionals. He has decades of embedded software engineering and development in telecommunication infrastructure, as well as the software lifecycle development process. So with great insights about product security and security at large, when Robert speaks, we listen. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much, Shlomi. Thank you very much, David, for having me here. I really appreciate it. So, you know, we met recently at a conference in Washington, and you shared a little bit about your journey into product security can you share with our listeners a little bit about that? How did you get into this field? Back in the radio days, uh, be a common phrase, long time listener, first time participant. So I wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. I have over 30 years of software development expertise over product life cycles from uh, concept all the way through customer support. So products that actually made it to market were successful many times over. Uh, these were traditionally, or typically, I should say, embedded products used in defense industry early in my career, telecom for many years, and of course, the last bunch of years in the medical device space. All of this came about, I had to think this through, this, this came about because of a fascination I had with mainframe technology in high school. We had a high school that gave the uh, students the ability to program on a mainframe or go to the lunchroom. Okay, me and my buddies, we were in the mainframe room all the time solving problems, whether they were assigned problems or eventually we got to do open-ended problems for ourselves. We ended up uh, going down the path that people with a certain mindset like myself started to do hacking against each other, hacking our friends to uh, figure out how we could get these old terminals to do things that were hilarious to us, but were in fact early hacking. We even jumped into this area of what we call today social engineering our teachers. This was early in the 80s. Yes, we got the admin password for the mainframe and then put little displays up for our teacher as a goodbye present as we were seniors in high school. The seed for security had been planted. Got my bachelor's in 1989 from uh, Rutgers University, bachelor's in electrical engineering, and I jumped right into the U.S. defense industry, working for a U.S. defense contractor. Thus, I was involved with physical security, network security, the security of just keeping things quiet in the sense of signing off and following policies according to defense requirements. Which one did you work for? I worked for a very small firm that was like a boutique firm in central New Jersey. We were working on U.S. intelligence platforms, command, control, communications, and intel. So listening and recording information was the primary focus of these things. And I was on the base often. 
to work on the sites. There was no such thing as remote working in that industry. There's no such thing. Remote means pack up your stuff, go to your car, drive to the base, get through clearance, get through second level of clearance. Finally, you're in the building, which uh, leads to getting into the mainframes you want to work on. Now, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I worked for TRW Space and Defense for a few years out in LA before nice. I moved here to Tel Aviv. Yeah. I liked, I liked that job. It was a very interesting job, but there was absolutely no concept of remote work. It's just not possible, which I suppose is the same to this day in, in some respects. I was inspired actually by my father. Uh, he, my father's a mechanical engineer. I had questions for my dad. I had questions for my teachers. How do these electronics work? I understood transistors. I understood circuits, but how do they actually get a CPU to do stuff? And that led in my journey of discovery in how microprocessors and operating systems can actually control the physical world, hence my love for embedded systems. After my defense contracting work, I took a career in IoT regarding telecommunication boards in the Bell Labs world. Those were very interesting, and this was a talent that I brought to the medical device world. Control plane processors for fiber optic switching, cell phone-based stations, ultra-reliability was not the word we used, but it was the expectation. 24-7 uptime, 365 days uptime. We were allowed 15 minutes of downtime a year. So that's your five nines, I believe, is the, is the number that's been yeah. thrown around there. Wow. So how did we do that? We would do continual assessment of our code quality and code complexity using off-the-shelf tools. Money was to be had, so we had some very good quality tools. What was the overall motivator? You wanted to avoid being on the wall of shame. We had weekly standups where uh, we would look at, hey, what does the code quality look like for each of the different uh, functional areas? And of course, it was a very simple one-to-one -one mapping functional area to engineer. You didn't want to be on that wall of shame indicating horrible code quality, horrible code complexity. Once is fine, but being on that list uh, for a couple of weeks yeah, peer pressure would kick in pretty hard to uh, get you to bring your code quality up. It was it was a very interesting dynamic that my uh, manager brought to light. And it caused us to have a much higher quality, much higher reliability end result. It was fascinating. Probably wouldn't get away with that today in today's uh, work environment. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is the 2000s. Um, <laughs> right. It worked. I mean, every one of us in Bell Labs was a very high performer in that group. We had 15, 20 people who are all excellent at doing embedded software development. And part of that excellence, that drive, that got you in the front door, that then got you onto these teams to produce quality code, you just wanted to be as good as the next guy. And if you weren't as good, we had a very open relationship of talking to anyone about any topic on how to make things better. So we wouldn't disparage each other one-on-one. -on -one. You just didn't want your name up on that presentation board too often. <laughs> didn't want to be considered a slacker. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward, I always wanted to be involved in biomed, believe it or not. The day I walked into Rutgers College as a freshman, I wanted to be involved in biomed. Things took a different course. Like other podcast participants you've had, Ken Hoime being a good example, things went a different way. Personally, I had a journey that for uh, three and a half years, seven days a week, we were managing my infant through toddler's child enteral feeding infusion using a feeding pump. She had a medical condition where she couldn't swallow properly, couldn't get food through her mouth. And nothing will teach you about infusion pumps, I think, better than using it seven days a week for three and a half years. Good thing I know how to wake up in the middle of the night when an alarm is beeping in the other room and go back to sleep within 15 minutes. My wife was always fascinated. How is it you can just wake up and then just go back to sleep? I'm like, I don't know. I'm blessed. I, I like it. That is a blessing indeed. <laughs> yeah. I can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
These days, I don't know if I could still do that. But back then, it was what I had to do. And it, it worked out beautifully. My daughter is 100% these days. She's a beautiful 21-year-old. I got the opportunity to join Bebron Medical about eight years ago to put that long history of embedded expertise into infusion pumps within my first month at Bebron as a senior embedded engineer. So I came into the company as a senior embedded engineer because of my expertise. Right away, I put my Linux expertise into practice to both improve reliability. And oh, by the way, there was a security patch that we needed to apply to the product. Nothing unusual based on my years of experience with working with open source, specifically Linux kernels, uh, Linux open source, uh, the related tool chain products, nothing unusual about that. Then that effort and subsequent other additional routine security efforts like doing CVE intakes started me on the path to becoming the de facto security expert on infusion pumps at Bebron. One thing just led to another, led to another. I like talking to people. I like explaining technology and bringing it into the level of understanding for the person on the other side of the table. And I was willing to additionally talk to not only people, say, in marketing or sales about these topics, but if they said, could you get on a call possibly and talk to a customer? Sure. I have no fear talking to a customer about these topics. Again, it calls, falls back on years of experience with, okay, there's a patch to apply for a feature in open source or for security. The mechanisms, the mechanics behind it are the same. Interesting. That's a pretty incredible background, I have to tell you. A lot of the people that we speak to, you know, they, they happen upon cybersecurity or they were doing other things and somebody said, hey, you should really get into cybersecurity. It's the next thing. But it's not that you were in the depth, you know, right from the beginning. So we see you as one of the real innovators in the field. You know, you're always finding new ways to solve complex problems. So what would you say is the biggest problem faced by product security teams today and how do you try and tackle that? Yeah, excellent question. I thought about this for a while and the same thought kept coming to mind. It was information overload that threatens to consume either all of my time or all of my team's time. So that is a for me, the biggest problem. Cybellum, you guys yourselves have put out reports and other industry teams have put out reports showing that there's an enormous ratio of false positives or somewhere around 90% of all the issues coming around are, because, are, are in fact false positives because they're not impactful to the device. That's going to lead to a further discussions for sure. But still, we have to manage this intake. We can't just ignore it, right? You're not allowed to just ignore it. So how do you do this without being jaded, meaning that doing the job of vulnerability intake without putting preconceived notions, oh, it's another garbage CVE, or it's another item that can't possibly affect us. There is that mindset you need to overcome that says, okay, my ego is driving me. I know this is not an issue. Let me just wipe it away. In fact, you still need to do an intake and, and prove it because on the other side, there could be the possibility of an assessor that looks at this information. Similarly, existing scoring systems such as CVSS, designed to help a broad audience of security practices but it provides a skewed view of the impact to the IoT devices, such as medical devices. I mean, CVSS is pretty good if you're looking at traditional network infrastructure, large-scale connectivity. It doesn't give you this kind of information we're looking for many times in the medical device space. So triage is the answer. That's what we do. That's, I think, what other people do. Anytime you have a huge volume of important information coming at you, triage is a great way to sort this out into at least two or three buckets. Do I need to deal with this now? Can, can I deal with this later? Um, do I never have to deal with it? I'm a firm believer that product security teams have to develop and cross-pollinate 
capabilities of their products. I want my team members to become experts on the different product lines that we all support. My answer is your team needs to develop organic expertise over time on those specific products. We have various families of products at Vibron, various generations of those families too. So how do you do that? I like to engage my team members on the product security team with professionals for that product in R&D, in marketing, in sales, in field support, and anywhere else where we can get some information exchange with folks in-house. What this does is the product security team members become the subject matter experts and develop those deep and important personal relationships. That's what I find to be super important. And then another one I want to talk about is issue velocity. What does that mean? Over time, the expertise that my team members gain, and they do the documentation of those CVEs based on the features supported by the product, it makes the overall issue intake velocity improve over time. You're looking at a brand new product or a brand new version of a product. There's a lot of questions to ask all these people over again in R&D. You got to find all the right people. You got to find the project leadership. Okay. So in the beginnings, you may have for a new version of a product, some decrease in issue velocity on your intake side. Issue velocity improvement though, over time leads to trust. People understand better. My team members understand who to go to. My team members can then over time, instead of spending 20, 30 minutes on a call, it might just be a quick verification. Hey, do we understand this properly? Or as simple as here's an email. I think we got it. Can you just give us the blessing that everything looks good? What I found a couple of weeks ago when I was at the medical device product security seminar is a concept called product security teamwork is the glue that ties together your cross-functional team's behavior. The quality team, your quality focus is foundational. FDA pre-market expectations provide a common understanding that quality, of course, is going to be looking out for safety. They've been talking about that since 2014. They did it again in 2018. They've done it uh, with their latest revision, 2023. So now security, of course, is product safety. They're one and one, one and the same. So how does traditional quality assurance take on security? The glue that is the product security team. We bring the, all these different functional areas together to have a concept that goes from end to end. Design development, V&V, fielding, and of course, customer support. And oh yeah, by the way, we're always and have always been doing vulnerability intakes on a daily basis, assessing on a, all this kind of stuff that comes to us. And of course, back to triage, right? It all ties together. It comes full circle. Complexity is part of this question. Uh, complexity is the enemy of elegant design and elegant implementation. One of my personal talents that I try to develop in my team is to think about complex security problems, link them to the product's physical impact or potential physical impact, and think about how to explain this to your family, right? To, to non-technical folks. No need to sound smart, no need to use technical talk, rather use fewer words and get to the point. If you like some nonfiction, think Hemingway. Think three panel cartoons, very short very concise. Concise description, concise writing, get feedback from trusted partners in the business on what you're trying to express so that people can understand. I see some head nodding here in the, on the call. Yeah, that's, that's about what I want to say on that one. Amazing. Yeah. Love Hemingway, first of all. Uh, but uh, second, <laughs> I think that last point you made is, is really, really crucial. And I think a lot of cybersecurity folks fall on that specific part of trying to translate it to simpler and also to business terms. 
So I, I wanted to ask you kind of a parallel question to what you just discussed, which is the issue of the sync between safety and security. Uh, when we met a few weeks ago at, at a conference, you, you talked about that area and I found your, your uh, insights really interesting. So how do you see that connection between safety and security? Well, what's your approach with regards to that? As your guest Ken Hoim said in his podcast in 2022, the quality assurance organization is what drives and what anchors medical device world. My quality organization manages product safety. They're charged by the FDA to manage security, plus the potential impact on safety from those security issues, right? That's that's their charge. The This new-ish 2023 guidance based on what they put out earlier is reinforcing the fact that this is all part of the quality management system. Even the document title has changed. Um, it's a very long document title. In fact, right, right in there, you'll see that it says QMS. So it's not just medical device security. It's medical device security and its impact on the quality management system. Relationships. I'm a big believer in strong personal and organizational relationships that seek the best engineering outcomes and drive excellent security results in product design and, of course, product development that comes from that. And what does that mean? It means that product security it must be a strong, trusted partner with your quality organization. In my organization, we have two sides of the quality house, the pre-market side for design and development, which is these days documentation heavy. We have another side of the house of quality that is the post-market, not as much documentation, but definitely a strict process flow that we and our team help to develop the process that we hold ourselves accountable to. We're using a RACI chart to make sure all the appropriate people are informed and notified. We put together a fairly straightforward set of documentation that's got the flexibility to do capture issue intake on the post-market side. And a lot of times the post-market side is where the safety security intersection comes into play. In fact, it's it's a line item. It specifically asks, is there a potential for a safety uh, issue or safety concern here? So is this part of your organization or is it something you're interfaced into, into the quality teams? We are interfaced, like you said. We are interfaced okay. into the various quality teams. In the post-market side, we helped put together the policies, procedures that define what it is we do, how we do it. And that way, we got good buy-in from the quality organization because they could test it and see that everything works just lovely. And then, of course, do an annual review to make sure that those procedures are still appropriate for where we are today. So I have a question, if I may, about improvements and innovation and budget, right? So in, in some of the medical device manufacturers, the budget is held, let's say, by the security team or the security organization or even sometimes the IT organization. But the actual requests have to come from or, let's say, be backed up by the quality and compliance teams. And then the business units kind of fall into play, you know. And so there's this like um, umbrella organization where you have your IT security and then you have your product security, and then you have the quality and compliance who are actually requesting, you know, particular uh, security innovations or changes or updates to comply with the pre-markets. And then the business units, of course, also want to have that. But without those quality and compliance folks actually pushing, or let's say requesting these new changes, it's harder to get budget, let's say, from, you know, from the management of the, of the organization. Yeah. Our organization isn't structured the way you've pointed out. The fact of the matter is the quality organization overall helps to drive what it is we as a product security team need to produce to satisfy, of course, post-market requirements and regulatory efforts. 
to assure customers that the product remains safe. I'm part of the R&D organization, and in that organization, we have charge over devices in the field, uh, devices in design, classic case. So that's where my uh, responsibility sits. So from that perspective, what I try to do, again, back to relationships, I try to show that over time, we do assessments of open source products, we do assessments of commercial products, we take a look at things so we can stay on the cutting edge of what's out there. Um, And not just what's out there, but what's out there that is capable of helping us improve. And that takes time. So using whatever process procedure we have today, I recommend you run through that process or procedure for a number of months, maybe even a year or two, before you make a decision that says things could be better. Uh, Maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. I think it's worth uh, every now and then exploring new solutions, but always base that exploration on the data you've been collecting over time. So when we're doing this safety and security intersection, I like to use attack trees, right? People who've heard my talks, people who uh, at work who listen to me attempt to answer the question, hey, is this particular issue we're looking at today impactful to safety? Let's draw up an attack tree. Or ideally, we've already drawn up an attack tree. We're just going to go back to it and we're going to take a look. Uh, The attack tree basically lays out a logical set of steps. What does it take to impact this medical device negatively, such that a patient harm is, is, is in scope? Lay out your highest level concepts of what that could be. You could change some configuration information. I mean, after all, it is computer driven, computer programs, computer operations, many times for flexibility, use configuration data. It could be that uh, an attacker wants to go after, you know, one of the other targets might be the actual firmware on there. Great. Firmware is control. You alter the control plane, you've got full control of the device. Finally, maybe they alter the actual data flow outside of the scope of what the firmware is doing, maybe they alter that. So all of these three are general topics of the potential to cause harm, the potential to impact safety. Now, tie that into your latest security vulnerability. Okay, you've got that latest security vulnerability. You go read the details. They might be the kind of details that makes it very unclear. That's often the case. It makes it unclear as to whether this is impactful or not. Well, then go to your attack tree. Spend some time with your product security team spend some time with the the developers of that product and break this tree down even more into finer details that you would need to decide yes or no is this a, is this particular vulnerability we're looking at today impactful to safety mm, interesting okay so uh, on the note of uh, vulnerabilities so one of the issues that we hear about from people in the industry is the automation of vulnerability management and what you were talking about the triaging finding the right balance between Automation and manual work is key in the medical space, and it's very difficult to pull off. So how do you integrate automation into your workflows? Sure. The key with automation is looking at my security team's efforts, observing the quantity of data we're reviewing, observe the quality of that data, and observe the sources of that data. Those are three pieces of information I need, the quality, quantity, and where are the sources. Now it's time to do measurements, right? Uh, You get to a certain point early in my career in product security, Measurements were not a thing to concern myself with because if there was only one or two vulnerabilities, it's real easy to to manage that in, say, a post-market. Over time, you'll start to recognize, and we've seen that since, oh, it's only about been about the last six years where the number of vulnerabilities reported jumped because lots of people are taking a look at it. You've got researchers all over the place who, are, who jumped on the bandwagon of saying, let's go find and devices. Let's go find software that might have issues and dig in. So the number of vulnerabilities seemingly jumped. They've always been there. It's just people took their time to go dig into the details to see, what can I do with this issue? 
another aspect of this difficult question, integrating automation, is are you an organization that has one or two products? I've spoken to some companies that that's where they're at. That's a different problem than if you have, say, five or 10 products. Each of those products has three versions in the field. Now you're looking at 30 distinct items you have to account for. Um, I've talked to some companies that have literally hundreds of products on the market. Um, you need this information in order to answer your automation question. Another facet, currently, today, in your medical device world, are you building the updates to your products in-house? If so, I, I would suggest you do have the S-bomb. You already know what's in the product because you're building it. You have the build system. You have a deep understanding of what is and is not possible with respect to vulnerabilities when they are presented to you. In this case, I see your org having uh, existing expertise in vulnerability management. Now the question, do you want to better manage those assessments? Uh, you can look at various commercial tools and open source tools that can help you. But first, make sure you understand what it is you're capable of doing. On the other hand, maybe you're managing a collection of legacy systems, which you really have limited knowledge of the details. I spoke to some folks at the uh, security conference a few weeks ago, and they, they have some products where they really are suffering because of a little knowledge about the details of those products. In that case, you might need a, a different set of tools that can uncover those details and guide you to understand what is the SBOM, what is the build environment or build system that you need to have, and gradually develop that expertise. Here, you, you probably want a much more comprehensive solution that can do many tasks, such as extract an SBOM examine the executables for faults uh, and configuration issues, as well as potentially build out threat models. You have a lot of products. It might not be scalable to sit down with a group of engineers and build one threat model at a time over a period of weeks. Also, I'm a proponent of staying in contact, as I've indicated, with others in the industry to learn from each other. I participate in HISAC. I'm a representative to the AMI organization. We have key people at work in the IHE organization. We attend conferences on medical device security. All of these are ways to learn from each other on what works in product security. And then over time, you know, go into these conferences, it, it, it's October. A lot of people are focused on cybersecurity in the month of October, so we see lots of conferences. I strongly suggest people go participate in one or two of these a year to see where your peers are. Then use the contacts you'll gain from those uh, events to explore what is your existing automation solution, if any, and what are other people doing? And again, I like to review. Here's, here's what I try to do. When I get that annual uh, bill renewal notice from my vendor, take the time at that point to reassess that tool that we've been using for some number of years. Is it time to change it? Do a, do a, do a decent assessment with your team. Are there better tools out there? Have things changed such that what we were getting is this thin sliver of information, but there are other tools out there that give us a more broad viewpoint of what's going on in the security world. Now, Automation. Automation should save you something. A year or two ago, I was taught by a wise instructor the following. Security always costs you something, right? Security always yes. costs you something. So flipping that on its head, automation should save me something, right? I'm just taking that uh, concept and saying, okay, if, I'm, if, I, if security costs me, what does automation do? It, it potentially could save me time. It could save me money. It could reduce my complexity. It could suggest mitigations to make my life easier. It could make things easier to integrate. It could make things easier to talk about with other non-technical folks, with my leadership, with regulatory bodies. Global focus. So one of the things I want to bring up that I'm not a silo at Bebron Medical. 
there is a, after doing product security for a few years, like I said, within a month of walking in the door, I started doing some elements of product security without giving it a formal title or a name. But over time, these uh, vulnerabilities started to be a real effort, consuming real time, <laughs> you know, billable time to my boss. So Bebron as a global organization, we're Bebron Medical, a US organization, then there's Bebron, the parent organization in Germany. They brought a global focus. They have a product security team over there that came into being as a result of, get this, looking at the joint security plan, one of my favorites out there, the JSP, gives insight that shows there are metrics you can use to judge how good are you at medical device product security. It specifically discusses in there, there's a whole assessment section at the tail end of the document. It specifically discuss, discusses corporate or, oversight and leadership. Okay, so I go study up for the CISSP. I'm sure it's the first chapter of the CISSP study guide says you're going to get nowhere unless you have senior leadership buy-in when it comes to security. Pushing up doesn't work. Once, it, once the senior leadership in your organization recognizes the security needs, then things can really start to happen. Bibron Global uh, in Germany created the Global Product Security Organization. What do they do? Policies at the corporate level based on harmonizing regulations. Awesome, we all know about regulations here in the medical device world. As a group, they help engage with us and others all over the world to get participation, to find the best in breed concepts, policies, and of course, tools. The nice thing is the global organization recognizes that each division that creates actual products has to do the hands-on security work. They have to tailor these policies to make them work specifically. Now, on the flip side, they can also take that information and share it with others who might be in a different phase in their security journey. There might be other organizations that are brand new to it, and maybe they don't even have staff yet, but they want to know, what's been working for you, Rob? What's been working over there in Spain? They look at tools, of course, to gain financial efficiency, common use cases, and expertise. Sharing expertise across the company is a real big uh, improvement. Another topic we did that really helped the organization, and this came out from Global, awesome that they were able to do this, they brought in outside experts for a multi-day training on everything you ever wanted to know about threat modeling. So probably our friend Adam, right? <laughs> Adam and people who were trained by Adam uh, right. came in and uh, multi-day training, hands-on work, actual examples, run through the examples, you know, phones go quiet, you've got half an hour to work on these things, and then come back together and, and show your work. That made it so much easier for me to go back to the development teams and say, remember when we did that, that, uh, ex uh, that exercise with those experts there? We're going to do this for real. Uh, you know, let's grab a conference room for 30 minutes. I always say 30 minutes. It's going to be an hour. <laughs> and let's just talk about everything about the way your system is configured. Let's talk about all the different data flows. What are the data producers? What are the data consumers? Where are their trust boundaries that it's, you know, Maybe this is a CPU processor trust boundary. Maybe this is a network trust boundary or corporate trust boundary. And just start sketching. It makes my life a lot easier when people have a base understanding of what threat modeling is all about. I think in the medical device industry, the sharing between manufacturers and suppliers is much greater than in other industries. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because the uh, ultimate goal is the health and safety of the patients wherever they are and the you know, what they're using. But I can tell you, I was at um, an event, an automotive cybersecurity event, and, and we were talking about how much people are sharing. Now, you know, there's also an auto ISAC, let's say the parallel of health ISAC, but the people there, and they were the senior execs of, of cybersecurity, they keep 
you know, things very much close to the chest and, and they don't share as much. I don't think that was the feeling I got that they're not sharing as much as we do in the medical device arena, which is a very good thing for the medical device industry. It is. I, I completely agree. And I, I think I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is strictly my opinion, but I think it's because the healthcare industry is especially when this stuff is put into the field in use in a hospital. A hospital is doing a massive amount of unique system integration work. Big places I've worked for, system integration is is always a very large, complex, well-thought-out process. It's not just buy a whole bunch of infusion pumps, throw them on our network. Buy a few MRIs, throw them on our network. Buy some monitoring devices, throw them on our network without the thought that is your network capable of still handling all that? Is it? Are the security considerations making sense, right? You've got a variety of products with a variety of ages. You know, some might be 10 years old. You, you think they're brand new, right? You think they're brand new. But when you actually go to the chips, you actually go to the firmware, you realize, wow, this, this thing was built 10 years ago. It still works. It's still secure. But are there other solutions you can uh, implement such that you could say, okay, how do we look at this entire system to get the best of both security and safety and performance? Again, it, it's because I, I turn on my car, right? Cars, I think one of the persons in, in a podcast in the past said they have 50 to 80 processors on them. But the fundamental thing is, like, I've got a 2022 and a 2023 in the garage. When you turn that on, yes, there's a whole bunch of processors talking to each other over various networks. Yes, I have dabbled and did, did work for a company that uh, I was involved in making a custom board support package for one of their Linux infotainment systems. So I know there are clear boundaries, infotainment, probably is never, under any circumstances, able to see the data that has to do with acceleration, braking, vehicle control, et cetera, for good reason, right? Maybe not to see, but maybe they're on the same bus or the same... Yeah, correct. They, they have the same ability to you know, get from one to the other, and we've seen that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Now, go to the hospital, and the hospitals are like, oh, 15 years ago, flat network was fine. Let's just run Ethernet, and every device can see every all the other devices, because there just weren't that many devices. That's my guess. Fast forward to 2023, and there's very, very good reason that we should have isolation. <laughs> we should have VLANs so that products can't see each other, so that you could also limit the potential impact of any kind of a problem. I think necessarily the healthcare industry and then the medical device people are jumping right into it. The sharing of information is necessary because we, we all see that, okay, so I'm putting a thousand infusion pump wireless clients on your network, but somebody else is seeing I'm just putting a couple of Linux boxes to control this high-end machine. We're all sharing the same infrastructure. So because we're sharing the infrastructure, guess what? We've got the uh, IHG Standards Committee developing and have been developing protocols called HL7 as one way to have common communication mechanisms. So there's, there's built-in need and built-in desire and, to some extent, financial considerations to share this information. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I think uh, in the context of a hospital, which is really very a very different situation than other devices uh, and where they end up, right? If you're talking about car, they end up in a private ownership or, you know, most extreme case, maybe in a, in a fleet of cars. But when you're talking about a hospital, it's such a complex organism that the rules are different. So, Robert, I wanted to change the topic for a minute and ask you about talent and more specifically recruitment. So we, we chatted about this a few weeks ago and you have built a product security team from scratch. Uh, I'm curious, how do you pick the right people? What's important for you when, when building such a team? Yeah, that's an ongoing concern 
in not just the broad medical, but uh, across the board. I don't think it even, it, it's not even exclusively impactful to medical devices. This is a nationwide, if not worldwide problem. For me, clearly having people who have some experience in product development or in product regulatory understanding or classic security topics, notice I'm using the word or, are important skills. But I don't demand all of those skills from any individual thing, from any individual person, excuse me. I'm looking for people who have a strong desire to learn, a desire to explore, to experiment, and to break things, right? I need a mindset of people who can show me that they have a strong set of internal values such that they can say, I know what is right from wrong, you know, in general, right and wrong. And I will, I will go down the path of doing the right thing, plus being able to set step foot over onto the Let's try and break this side and see what could happen and then write it up. And, and we, we all like to do this kind of thing with a little bit of a twisted mindset. Uh, Chris Gates in his podcast talks about the twisted mindset that he's looking for in some people. And we get a good laugh out of, wow, look, that's broken. What could happen? Oh, okay, let's, let's go down the possible paths of what could happen. We laugh about it, right? All the things that could go wrong. It's, it's fantastic. I like to, like a lot of engineers growing up, uh, I like to break things to see how they work. To this day, it's no different. Um, I'm all sorts of excited if this table was completely cleared in front of me and you put down a circuit board, a bunch of probes, uh, a collection of components, scopes, and logic analyzers, and you said, go ahead, you've got a couple of weeks, just go play with this this new microprocessor and see what you can get it to do. Still fascinating to me. So security protection, it really is about thinking along the lines of how would that motivate an attacker with all that collection of piece parts in front of them, how would they go about breaking things to see how they work? No different than I would, right? Well, I shouldn't say no different, but similar to the way I would. And then see what happens. With that mindset, plus some background in the topics around security, a strong desire to continue to learn, I find that teaching specific skills that I need in my organization around product security, around medical devices, that's what I like to do to develop a deep sense of trust with my peers here at work. Partnership, of course. We, we love to do this hands-on stuff. We love to experiment and learn and see what's going on. The most important thing I see is partnership. I want to teach my team members, and I continue to teach my team members to engage with people across divisions so they can see the world from, say, the R&D perspective as developers. They can see it from the quality system perspective, the marketing perspective, and really, really important from the field support perspective. As an example, one of my team members spent a significant amount of time in product support early in his career. He also has a security undergrad degree. I didn't know this at the time, but he joined my organization to provide us with an understanding over what really happens when we deploy, say, thousands of wireless products into a connected network at a customer site. His experience in that area has had direct influence on how we shape policy going forward. Trust. I build the organization based on trust and working to keep that trust. I want the team to share each of their viewpoints to avoid security silos. For me, having security silos, having information silos defeats the whole purpose of being able to answer those big questions. Does this next vulnerability have an impact on safety? You really can only answer those when you have a deep understanding and deep understanding comes about through this mutual trust. Right now, we're working with our quality teams to integrate that FDA pre-market guidance set of concepts around a secure product development framework. How do we fully appreciate what the FDA is saying with respect to quality management? FDA clearly developed that thinking in those documents 
by going to experts and writing down their quote unquote current thinking as a group effort. So if we think that FDA did this on their own, they didn't. They're working as a team in-house. They're working with experts around the medical device space in their teams to get current thinking. So what we're doing is a group effort on reviewing and understanding how that set of expectations, meaning FDA's current thinking, is interpreted by each member of our team. Here's where trust comes into play. Team members have their own history in security efforts, so they're sharing with me and each other that expertise from their perspective. We take all that information that we're bundling up and we work with quality to develop policies, procedures, to integrate these viewpoints. Team effort means I need people who are both assertive and also willing to put their ideas out there on the table for us to discuss and then enforce that information going forward in an effective product development organization through policy and procedure. You know, I can see why you've been successful in your career because your outlook is not only in the market where you want to collaborate with other organizations and with the, you know, the medical device industry organizations and with your colleagues and peers, but you're also drilling that into your teams and you're bringing that to your teams, how they should be collaborating internally. And I think if one thing really sticks out in my mind about this discussion, I mean, there are many things, but so far, the, the collaboration, the, the idea of, you know, not having silos and whether you're talking about the industry or you're talking about internally in the, in the organization. And I think that's really incredible definitely sticks out. So I have a question for you that we always like to ask, what is the most hard to believe moment that you've had in your career so far? You know, what was that amazing moment that really stuck out and sticks out in your mind? This is a great question. I really enjoy it because it gives me the time to reflect back on my career in product security here at Bebron Medical. Recently, I've had the pleasure of observing that the concept of security as a sales enabler is actually being used. I've been pushing this concept for a while, and I'm not the one who invented it, struggling to figure out where I first heard it, but I've been using this idea, security as a sales enabler. A number of years ago, I was asked to write a piece for Amy, a write-up in their biomedical journal. I was also asked around the same time, based on that content, to write a white paper for our marketing team on the topic of our product security to help with our portfolio. Fantastic. These white papers provided me an opportunity to describe security issues in simple terms. I wanted to show that despite technical complexity, the bottom line on many security issues can be summed up in non-technical terms that show us either the possibility as well as the degree of harm or that there's little or no concern about patient harm. Over time, I could see that this effort to just write a white paper, right? A lot of times we're like, okay, I'm going to write a white paper. Almost sounds like homework was far more than a one-page promotional piece of material. It was impacting across entire organizations. It was helping me to talk with the sales team. It was helping me to talk with customers. It was helping customers to talk with us on product security. And it was enabling conversations that historically had been feared in-house. Using the product security team to drive these conversations with research and development is bearing a fruit. I could see that our involvement in new product design discussions has engineers and product leaders asking the open-ended questions. What's the impact to product security on this feature we're looking at right now? That's what makes me really, really pleased. I have seen that evolve over time from ignore it, it'll go away, leave it to somebody else, to now when we're having a discussion about the latest feature we want to add. Leadership, 
engineers are asking, what is the impact to security or potential impact to security? When you hear that, you know you've had a positive impact on product security. I believe it's a question that continues to need to be displayed without fear. Enabling and driving these discussions with my fellow engineers. Remember, I've got a 30-year background in engineering. I speak the language. I've done the work. I've got the, the, the street cred. It shows that security and safety can be aligned. It means that when, not if, when there's an issue, we have the skills to assess the problems, propose the solutions, and work out a good resolution. Fundamentally, we all know someone in our families who either needs medical attention now or we ourselves will need medical attention. These devices may be assisting you and me, our family members, our loved ones, now or in the future. So good, effective security as a feature should also be a personal journey. So Robert, any tips and tricks for product security teams in 2024? Yes. Looking at the FDA's 2023 guidance, looking at where we've come from in the last year with the U.S. Congress and uh, omnibus bill, we can see uh, that there's an underlying fact here. Harmonization is coming. We can see that the FDA guidance has numerous references to U.S. and international standards, consensus standards. And it reminds me of the joke. There's too many standards. Let's make another one. So, Yes, there's a lot of standards out there with medical device security. Um, (laughs) So harmonization, I think, is what's going to be coming down the line. For now, we can see that there are many standards, and I believe the FDA is getting it right. They're doing a lot more in in this 2023 guidance. They're doing a lot more of pointing to and referencing other uh, standards for the details of how do you do fill in the blank. Uh, We'll see the FDA updating their guidance next year. They're already on the list of they have to do it uh, for 2024 as well. We'll see an additional set of expectations coming from the IMDRF for your European Union guidances. We know that the Joint Security Plan, my favorite, is updating. So change is constant right now in the medical device product security space. Expect it. So what's the tip? Map your device design to the principles. Don't get lost in meeting minimum expectations for any one standard. Rather, look for features that would help you or your family when you need that medical device. I think that's an amazing tip. Robert, it's been an incredible session. This is going to be an amazing episode, I can tell already, and our listeners are going to love it. You've given us so much information and so many ideas and so much insights that I don't even know where to start. Wow. So I'll start by thanking you for being with us. And thank you for the invitation, folks. I appreciate it, both you guys. Thanks, Robert. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.